Hello and welcome back. Uh, it's been a interesting summer. It's been a long summer. Uh, it's good to be back. If you're if you're tuning in for the first time, my name is Jake, and I am kind of hosting this. No, I'm not kind of. I am hosting this. <laughs> you're thing. very much good. <laughs> Uh, I am hosting uh, this podcast, Theology and Dialogue, which is uh, basically just a group of us students in the uh, PhD program at Villanova in Theology and Religious Studies, um, recording conversations, recording uh, the exchange of interesting ideas uh, so that um, you know, we, can, we can share and include you all in the conversation, and we'd love to hear back from you. Uh, we're on Twitter, at Theo and Dialogue, and uh, we've got a website and stuff in the works. Don't go look us up now because you'll find our train wreck of a website currently, but in two weeks it might be all right. Um, so I'm sitting here today with uh, my friend Andre and my friend Matt, uh, also students in the um, uh, PhD program. And we are currently, we're releasing this week a roundtable that the two of them conducted almost a year ago now, huh? Yeah, coming up on uh, the full year, which is amazing how much has changed and how much has remained the same. Yeah. Yeah, so, so uh, Matt and Andre sat down with uh, two of our professors in the department, um, Katie Grimes and Vincent Lloyd, who both in their own ways work on uh, the topic of theology and race. Um, and last year we, we recorded a lot of stuff before we had all the infrastructure to, to upload it. So we figured we'd, you know, save up audio content. And this is one of the, um, old episodes that were, that, that, that were, you know, we still think is relevant. We still think is important. Um, so, uh, but anyways, before we jump into that, uh, let's, let's get, uh, let's get Andre and Matt to. Tell us a little bit about themselves here. Hey, everybody. My name is Andre Price. I'm a PhD student here at Villanova. Uh, my areas of concentration are systematic theology and ethics. Uh, I'm into theological method, uh, pneumatology, and a budding interest in the intersection of race and religion. And? Oh. oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm also uh, the pastor of a uh, historically African-American church in West Philadelphia, Mount Olivet Tabernacle Baptist Church. You can catch his sermons on Facebook Live, man, whenever you sleep in and you don't make it to church. That's how I get my, that's how I get my worship on on Sundays. If when you I, need a boost on a Sunday here yeah. at Reverend Andre, is yeah. good stuff. We'll get you there. Yeah. And I'm Matt. I'm a, also a PhD student here. Um, also into systematics and ethics, more specifically liturgy and sacraments and uh, environmental ethics. But I also have a background a bit in sort of practical pastoral theology. Um, worked in campus ministry here as a graduate assistant before, um, and I spent way too much time in residence halls at Catholic colleges and universities. Um, so very much interested in the practical application of a lot of theology. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about uh, a little bit about this roundtable. You guys... Uh, uh, basically organized it. Uh. Well, we were trying to pick a date with doctors Grimes and Lloyd, uh, and it turns out we did the Wednesday, like the week before the election, um, and we realized at the time, you know, things were looking better than than they look now for sure. Um, 
but so much after that conversation changed. I mean, uh, so much of what we're talking about is relevant. I think what we tried to discern and talk about was the importance of discussing race for theology. Um, just in the wake, I mean, it seems like at the end of every summer, we're sort of recovering from a uh, tremendous amount of violence, racially motivated violence. Um, and sometimes it takes theology a while to catch up, and we were trying not to wait too long um, before we brought a lot of these topics into consideration from a theological perspective. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how we started. Mm-hmm. And it was just amazing mm-hmm. what the timing of it all was. Yeah. And now, after Charlottesville, what <coughs> the timing is. Mm-hmm. I think what we find or what, uh, in going back to this in, in light of uh, contemporary issues post-election, is that we find that history has a weird way of repeating itself. Uh, and this discussion that we had uh, almost a year ago is uh, still relevant, and the question is still uh, pertinent. What is theology's role uh, in these issues, and how uh, do we as scholars, uh, as theologians, uh, respond and speak to these deep-seated uh, issues that uh, many of our friends and those uh, across the country are trying to deal with and, and think through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and during during the time when we were recording this, we were thinking a lot about um, so the Philandale Castile thing had just happened, and um, you know we were we were reflecting on uh, the massacre in Charleston um, and. You know, you always want to believe that things will get better. You wanna you wanna believe that you can make some kind of progress. That um, so that 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 we're not going to be fighting the same old stuff over and over and over and over again. Um, but you know, with with the sort of at the end of the summer, the uh, just flagrant display of white supremacy, neo-Nazism, uh, KKK members rallying in Charlottesville. Yeah, I'm, I'm not as optimistic. Jake, I remember when we were doing the planning meeting and trying to figure out how we wanted to approach this podcast, one of the things that we spent some time talking about is how uh, the incidents of Philando Castile and uh, all of the things that we had, the racial violence that we had experienced that summer, how they were not isolated incidents, but they were uh, incidents that were deeply connected to uh, the very founding of America that is uh, quite controversial and centers in many respects around issues of uh, not only race, but also class and, and gender. Uh, so. Uh, even in this discussion, as we think through these things, it's not just uh, these isolated incidents, but it's also the the Sandra Blands and the Emmett Tills and others who uh, were lynched in the Deep South, whose names uh, we will never know. Uh, and all of this, these racialized uh, acts of violence, and us taking the time to ask the question: What is our response as scholars? Uh, what is our response? Uh, what should the response of the Christian community be, uh, and how should we think about these events in our contemporary, uh, postmodern, uh, hyper-capitalistic society? That's a good word. Yeah. Also, since since we recorded the interview, Grimes and Lloyd have been doing a lot of work. Right, uh, they're Amazing. pretty I'm tireless. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I hope to be half as prolific as either of them. Yeah. Uh, 
So, um, uh, if if our listeners are, are interested in looking further and reading some of their more current stuff, what what have they got out right now? Dr. Grimes has uh, a book that just came out a few months ago titled Fugitive Saints. She also has a book that is forthcoming titled Christ Divided. If you're interested in reading uh, some of the work of Dr. Lloyd, uh, he has a book coming out in November titled Religion of the Field Negro. Uh, and he's also got another book coming out, uh, Anti-Blackness and Christian Ethics. So you definitely want to uh, check those books out, put them on your Amazon wish list. Uh, I'm sure they would make a great Christmas gift for somebody too. Uh, so you definitely want to check those out. Yeah, for the theology nerd in your life. Right. right. Um, so the, uh, a couple of little things that I should also mention before we jump in. Uh, uh, when we recorded this, it was really hot. And we were on the, what, like fourth fifth fourth floor, floor. Yeah. yeah no air conditioning no ac my knees are sweat the back of my knees are <laughs> so so the um the uh you know the windows are open the bell the bell tower is going so uh the audio quality again not the greatest uh but we feel like the content is important enough um uh, another thing, uh, one of my friends in the philosophy department came uh, and contributed to the roundtable, Catherine, and she is uh, just really brilliant, really smart, and uh, had a lot of really insightful things to say. She's also really, really quiet, <laughs> so <laughs> she's yeah, she's very, uh, she has a very soft voice, and uh, the mic had a hard time picking her up. So I'm gonna try to do a little bit of like uh, audio wizardry to kind of. Um, blow her voice up a little bit but and so it's not going to sound great but I think the things that she was saying were very important so um, I left them in there so uh, other than that just uh, make sure that if you like it or even if you don't like it subscribe and leave us a five star rating Uh, thanks for listening and enjoy so I'm going to introduce Dr. Grimes Uh, Dr. Grimes is somebody who I had for class two years ago now Um, yeah, uh, who studied at Notre Dame for her bachelor's and her master's degree and then went over to BC. Um, she is not as big of an Indians fan as she is a Cavs fan, um, so she's not worried too much about the events of later. Um, her favorite theologian, I believe, is Tupac. Um, and is just a wonderful, passionate, uh, brilliant scholar who we wanted to be a part of this conversation uh, and who is like engaging with these things in her scholarship. So Dr. Grimes is with us. And I will introduce Dr. Vincent Lloyd. He's the Associate Professor of Theology and Religious Studies. He's also the co-editor of Political Theology. Uh, He did his PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. His research interests revolve around religion, race, politics, uh, and using tools of critical race theory. Uh, He's also got several publications. Uh, and it's just an honor and a privilege to have him here with us. Dr. Lloyd, we'll start with you uh, with the first question. Uh, Can you tell us how you became interested in studying race and religion? Uh, What experiences shaped you, and what questions captured your heart and imagination? Sure, thank you uh, uh, so much for uh, the question and for organizing this uh, uh, podcast and this uh, discussion. Thanks to all of you for uh, being here. I'm looking forward to the, the conversation. Uh, 
I, I think my uh, uh, initial interest in thinking about the intersection of race and religion came from when I was an undergraduate uh, uh, down the street uh, a little ways uh, at Princeton, uh, where uh, one of the um, uh, issues that students were uh, concerned about, and I was uh, among the students who was concerned about this, was the, the treatment of the lowest paid uh, employees uh, on the campus, uh, dining hall workers, uh, janitors, uh, and others. Um, and in uh, some cases, uh, these uh, employees who had worked for uh, uh, many years, 10, 20, 30 years for the university, uh, many of whom uh, took buses in from uh, Trenton, uh, many of whom were uh, African-American or Latino, uh, were being paid uh, less than student employees who were working beside them doing the same job, right? Uh, being paid less than uh, eight or nine dollars an hour at the time. Uh, and it, it seemed like this was uh, clearly uh, a problem and unjust, right? Uh, and something uh, should be done about it. And that we, uh, as uh, uh, students, uh, had an obligation to do something about it and uh, to... Uh, uh, do something about it, not just in terms of protesting, but in terms of imagining what our community was uh, as a university community, right? That uh, it's not just uh, people who are paying tuition who make up the university community, not just the professors who make up the university community, but the employees uh, at every level who are part of that community, the neighbors of the institution who are part of that community, right? Uh, the uh, alumni are also part of that, uh, the community. Fans of the sports team are part of the community. Right? There, there's this, uh, maybe a broader sense of thinking about community uh, that uh, we were uh, trying to uh, to promote and to to imagine uh, collectively, um, and, and as part of the the, you know, the sort of concrete uh, uh, steps involved in, in in doing this, in addition to reaching out to different uh, constituencies like uh, alumni and uh, raising consciousness among students, you know, we went to local churches and particularly uh, the local black churches in uh, uh, Princeton, as you may know. Uh, uh, Paul Robeson's father was a pastor at uh, uh, the Witherspoon uh, Church, just uh, a few blocks from the, the Princeton uh, campus. And there's a long history of um, uh, black religion in uh, Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, and it was very uh, impressive to, to both see the um, uh, surprise <laughs> at uh, individuals of this in, in these communities at uh, you know finding that there are Princeton students who are interested in, in things that are not just uh, academic, not just sports, not just uh, partying on the campus, that uh, we're interested in envisioning the student, uh, envisioning um, the campus differently. So I mean, it, it, this got me thinking about you know how uh, uh, one of you know a, a key component in envisioning community is uh, a, a key resource can be re religious traditions and specifically Christian traditions. Uh, and specifically black church traditions. Um, uh, and so uh, in sort of a social justice uh, uh, struggles uh, that uh, we were uh, engaged in, uh, uh, just using a, a secular idiom was often not enough, right? Uh, being able to think in terms of, um, uh, both in terms, uh, holistically in terms of community, holistically in terms of individuals, right? As students who have relationships uh, with the people who are taking away our trash, even if we pretend we don't, right? That uh, we have relationships with the space, with the buildings, with the land that we're on, right? All these sorts of things. Right? Uh, religious traditions provide languages and ideas and resources for, for, for thinking about that. And so th th that's where I uh, started thinking about uh, these uh, ideas of religion and race and uh, sort of changed my uh, uh, course of study 
uh, from being a math major to being a religion major, uh, and uh, so we've pursued that uh, ever since. Same question for you. Yeah, Um, uh, I often say I need like a better origin story. I'm not really sure uh, why. I think from a relatively young age, kind of questions about race and racism, I think I always felt kind of a special connection to or passion for. Um, But as for the theology and race thing, like Vincent, I wasn't wasn't a theology major at any point when I was in college. Uh, Never crossed my mind, never ever thought I would be a professor of any kind, let alone a theology professor. I guess for me what it was is after I graduated college, I did a Catholic volunteer program called Amate House in Chicago. Um, and I uh, taught high school at a really amazing uh, all-girls Catholic school uh, called Our Lady of Tepeyac. And I lived in the same neighborhood uh, that the school was in, on the south, sort of on the west side and the south side of Chicago. And um, I think, and so we lived in community and we kind of, it was really the first time I, you know, we would we would have community nights and we would hear local speakers, many of them involved in religion, working for social justice, and we would reflect upon, you know, how, how does our, our work at our volunteer spaces intersect with religion. And so I think that kind of experience of actually thinking about theology in a new way, connecting to these kind of social justice issues I was very passionate about and living, I think that kind of sparked something in me. And then just living in Chicago, especially that part of Chicago, where I mean the, I mean our entire country is extremely racially segregated. But um, you know, literally a neighborhood, the racial makeup of the neighborhood would literally change one side of the street to the next. Um, so I think in many ways that experience it simultaneously, I mean, it completely transformed me, but it also simultaneously I think like crystallized kind of who I sort of always was, but didn't quite realize it. So I guess that for me was that kind of living in community. Uh, Losing theology, think about social justice and volunteer work was, and teaching, if, specifically at that school, is what kind of did it for me. Mm-hmm. In my graduate work and now as a professor here, I, I sometimes think that you know, I, I, my entire career is trying to be accountable to that experience, particularly mm-hmm. my students uh, that I had there. So thank you. That's mm-hmm. super helpful. It reminds me, just kind of off the top of my head, of Laudato Si, Francis talks about how. Um, our sto- the stories of our lives and the stories of our faith are always linked to a place and linked to people in that place. Um, and that's stuff we don't normally get to hear, so thank you for sharing that. Um, our, our follow-up question from that is sort of as your vocation, maybe we could say as a theologian, has developed out of these experiences, how, how might you narrate, you know, we hear the story all the time, you know, CNN, NBC, whoever you get your news from, the story of the last six months especially, um, but as Andre pointed to, something that's not new or news, um, but there is sort of a phenomenon now that, the, that our, our racial consciousness has elevated a little bit as a nation in one way or another. Um, how, as a theologian, do you narrate that story, either in your scholarship or just in terms of understanding, talking with family, students, friends, whoever it may be? As a religious studies scholar, I mean, I, I would uh, both look uh, to the, the history of uh, race uh, relations uh, in, in the U.S. and also the way that those histories are repressed or, or not seen. Uh, that uh, I think is um, uh, the question might be uh, suggesting right that there uh, have been uh, there are many injustices uh, and violences uh, in the United States and, and of course more broadly uh, and not all of them uh, are visible right, or receive attention uh, and uh, so the the uh, 
uh, change as you're uh, pointing to is that uh, there's a, a new visibility of uh, a, a certain set of um, uh, injustices and violences uh, around uh, uh, racism and, and uh, police violence uh, and related issues, uh, including incarceration. Um, uh, so, I, I mean, I, I think uh, right, there are always lots of uh, contingencies uh, that uh, give rise to you know, the way the, the, the sort of course that uh, history winds. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I think that uh, one can only repress so long and so much right, when uh, there are uh, these uh, deep uh, uh, structural and syst uh, systemic uh, uh, problems of uh, racial violence uh, and racial injustice, which um, uh, in many ways uh, have not improved uh, over a half century, even though the uh, rhetoric and the discussion uh, in the sort of broader uh, public sphere uh, has changed, right, where race stopped being mentioned and yet racial violence is still happening, right, that's only sustainable for so long, particularly when you know, as a, a black middle class and elite is getting integrated into white spaces, and yet it's still being subject to the, the sort of violence. So just that uh, poor black people are, are being hurt probably isn't enough to get media attention, right? But that the, the, the commentators for the New York Times and CNN, right? Uh, uh, there are now you know, uh, black people in those sorts of positions and they're also subject to these sorts of violences, right? There are people in positions of privilege who uh, uh, are making decisions that create visibility there. But uh, and I think there's also there also have been uh, histories of you know, organizing around these issues that uh, may appear spontaneous, but you know, uh, uh, build on work that's been being done, has been done in communities uh, you know, over the uh, past several decades when it uh, appeared as if uh, racism was gone or we're in a post-racial era, but actually uh, people in communities have been responding to racial violence by uh, trying to build po power in, in, in the various ways that they can. Uh, and trying to bring those visibility to these issues. So a combination of factors sort of allows for that visibility to finally, to finally take place. Yeah, um, one of the great uh, Catholic theologians, Sean Copeland, who was one of my uh, mentors uh, at Boston College and one of, the, one of the people I admire most in the world, she has this uh, concept, uh, with, especially with respect to racism, uh, we have in the United States what she calls a structural historical amnesia. Right. In other words, it's not just it's not a coincidence that people don't remember. It's it's kind of our things, whether it's our curriculum or the movies that are produced or uh, the stories families pass down about uh, you know what life was like when they were growing up. It kind of everything is designed that we forget or repress or twist certain histories. Um, and uh, so I think you know, and and you know, Copeland among others will say you know as Christians. You know, our entire faith is, is centered around remembering one of history's victims, right? Not just remembering that person, but remembering that person's victimization, right? Our entire, you know, uh, every, at mass, right? We remember the crucifixion and everything. And so in a lot of ways, the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and other kind of affiliated uh, things are, are basically, they're, forced, they're kind of, they're putting it in our face, right? In a way that I think is, is, goes against the grain. And I think part of the reason, uh, besides just the fact that they're trying to change 
society in a way that a lot of people don't want society to be changed. I think it's just the fact that they won't, or at least it makes it a lot harder to forget or to not think, right? You know, even things like blocking traffic on a highway, right? I mean, you're literally, you're disrupting people's kind of normal patterns of going with the flow, literally. Can't go with the flow if traffic's blocked. So in that way, uh, even though it's not necessarily a religious or theological movement, I think, you know, from a Christian theological standpoint, it's very, uh, it kind of uh, enlivens what, what it, part of what it means to be a Christian, which is remembering these kind of, the violence, you know, victims of history and, and so forth, yeah. This question is also to, to the both of you. In this late modern or postmodern, however you want to, in this contemporary situation, I guess, what do you see as the role of religion uh, and religious discourse, and how does the social construct of race uh, shape that discourse in society? I mean, I guess I'll speak for my own experience, my own location as a white Catholic woman. I mean, I would like to, I mean, I, I guess I would like to see the church um, certainly not reducing faith to action in the world or to politics or, or anything, but I, I would certainly like to see, uh, you know, the church really fulfill its very, you know, longstanding history of justice. So I'd like to see the Catholic church be on the side of justice, which, um, you know, it is in a lot of ways. So I guess, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a very interesting answer to that question. I mean, I think religious discourse can, I think it can, transform the way people open new possibilities for being human, right? It has this kind of eschatological hope. And it can remind us that what's here is not all there is, that there can be another world, right? Even if we don't, you know, we don't know how we're going to get there, but there can be another world. So I don't know. I, I guess, I, I think there's lots of resources in, in the Catholic tradition, for example, to work for justice, but also just to imagine another world, right? I think that's maybe one of the best things about faith in, in God, that his, not just not just, you know, sometimes I call it like the, the helicopter ladder, rope ladder escape, like when someone's in like a flooded car, you know, that heaven's not just for getting out of the flood, like on the, the rope ladder, but that there can be another world, right? No, I, I would agree with everything uh, Kitty said. Uh, maybe to, to say two more things, one in terms of um, just sociologically and one more in terms of ideas. Uh, I mean, it, it, there is a, a narrative of institutional decline, right, over the last uh, half century uh, or more uh, in terms of uh, the U.S. religious uh, landscape, uh, but not necessarily a decline in uh, belief, particularly belief uh, broadly, and the spiritual, right, is still a category that, that captures the imagination broadly in the American public. I mean, I, I think it's interesting to see the ways that uh, this sort of spiritual idiom, uh, even uh, concepts uh, like love, which have, uh, in the American context, often have specifically Christian uh, histories, which are forgotten or uh, repressed, uh, but circulate in new ways, uh, uh, sometimes uh, very emptily, right, uh, in terms of uh, 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 loving everyone else to, so everyone can get along, or in terms of ways of talking about romantic love, uh, but also sometimes in ways that can be uh, uh, radical and transformative. I think some of the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, organizers have, you know, used the sort of language of Black love and beloved community as a way of, you know, um, both empowering uh, Black social justice organizing uh, and also uh, thinking about ways of linking the ethical and the political uh, in terms of the practices of um, struggling for for racial justice. Uh, so that might be an example uh, of the. the, the ambivalence of the, the 
spiritual and, and terms of racial things at, at, at the level of ideas. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as Katie was saying, there are lots of um, ways in which this could go. I think the language of idolatry can be a very powerful one in thinking about uh, uh, whiteness and the ways that uh, whiteness, that is the, uh, the habits and ways of seeing the world and uh, ways of acting in the world that go along with right, the status of um, uh, uh, being white in America in uh, 2016, right? Uh, uh, whiteness attracts and blinds, right? It seems as if it uh, gives one what one is looking for, but idols, you know, uh, prevent one from uh, searching, uh, from pursuing one's true desires, right? They give you something that uh, seems as if it satisfies you, but it doesn't really satisfy you. So, and I think the, the, these are sorts of uh, theological concepts that uh, can be, uh, one can uh, not just play with, but actually can you know, provide ways of thinking about the contemporary racial landscape that can be, uh, help us uh, see what's wrong and see what we can do uh, different. Those are, that's really helpful and great. And you, you both have written a little bit on uh, figures who wouldn't traditionally be seen as theological figures, sort of building off of this uh, work. I know Dr. Lloyd, you mentioned, you know, nobody really questions Henry David Thoreau being a theological figure, but if you bring up Eldridge, Cleaver, George Jackson, it's kind of like, well, what is the role for them in theology? Um, but you both really point really compellingly, Dr. Grimes, your article on Tupac as a theologian. Um, you both speak of people who sort of lead in this conversation that you were talking about, Dr. Lloyd, uh, giving us uh, new ways of thinking about our religious language and the ways in which that operates in the public sphere. Um, and I know you, in, in the preface to Dr. Lloyd, the preface to Black Natural Law, speak about this as the epistemic privilege to be oppressed. Um, and that sort of leads the way in our conversation and sort of, you know, you pointed to there's a narrative of decline in religion. And not just in the sense of having a vacuum, but in the sense of there, there having been a, an oppressed voice. Like there, there is a new moment in a way. Or you're, you're doing, you both are doing like a really critical and powerful retrieval of figures like Aldous Cleaver, George Jackson, Tupac. Um, and this is building to a question, I promise. Uh, <laughs> how do you use your work, um, sort of, again, building off of this narrative, but existing as it is now, how does it reclaim or reframe who counts as a theologian? Um, Tupac is not somebody who would, so, who would normally think of as a theologian. George Jackson. Well, I mean, I, I would say, uh, yes, I think that's very important work. I think I would say, like, quote-unquote, academic theology, the discipline, right? Uh, I think it's, I mean, it's, it is, in a sense, something unto itself, but I think ultimately it's a means to an end and not an end in of, of itself. Uh, I mean, ideally it would, I mean, obviously serving the academy, but also serving the church, right, in the world, I guess, through that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think while there's something to be said for quote-unquote academic training as a theology, I certainly don't think that's the be-all, end-all. Um, I mean, so I guess my answer is pretty boring. It's just yes. I think, I think it, theology can be done by lots of different people, and obviously, even just people who get to have a PhD, right? Obviously, our society is economically and racially unjust, right? So already, that's going to be skewed uh, towards white people from a certain social class. Um, but yeah, I think kind of expanding the boundaries of who counts in, in every sense, not just in theological conversations, but political conversations, uh, I think is, is, I think it's like a requirement of, of I mean, of, of being it not just a theologian, but a Christian of any kind, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a boring answer, but I'll just say yes. I think that's what we should do, yeah, for sure. Is that, 
mean, if we're thinking of theology as an enterprise that pursues uh, the true, the good, and the beautiful against the background of uh, Christian tradition uh, and drawing on the resources of, of that tradition, it, it does seem like uh, many uh, people can do this. Uh, and uh, I mean, there there are, of course, uh, within the uh, Christian theological tradition, uh, senses of you know, prayer being a, a privileged site of. Uh, 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 Access to uh, shout out, shout out, Andrew Grebo's new book. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, insights to the uh, the true, uh, the good, and the beautiful. Uh, but uh, I think um, uh, right there's also a sense in which uh, uh, our world, right, and the wisdom of the world uh, distorts how what we see is true, what we see is good, and what we see is beautiful. Right? Um, uh, and uh, Money and race uh, and uh, gender privilege, these are all things that can distort uh, what we see as uh, true, good, and beautiful. Uh, and so it does seem as if there's much uh, work to be done uh, uh, from those sort of operating in the conceptual realm to figure out you know, what those distortions are and how to undo them, right? Uh, not just sort of now, but against the background of tradition which has also been distorted in different ways at different times by different sorts of uh, blindnesses um, uh, and privileges. Uh, but also, you know, one way of uh, uh, doing that uh, is to uh, look at uh, communities uh, that, uh, where there's less distortion, right, and this uh, epistemic privilege of the oppressed uh, sort of language, trying to get at the sense that, you know, there might be spaces where uh, uh, because of experiences of, uh, of oppression and coming face to face with injustice and violence uh, against one's body on a regular basis, right? Some of those distortions get clarified pretty quickly, right? When, when uh, uh, faced with uh, the um, brute force of the powers that are doing this distortion, right? Uh, uh, so there might be uh, insights from these sorts of uh, uh, marginalized communities and communities that uh, are uh, uh, suffering and facing oppression that uh, can help those working in the conceptual uh, realm. But I think those working uh, in the more conceptual realm or the academic realm uh, also, you know, have important tools at their disposal in terms of thinking about critique and histories of. Uh, 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 critical reflection that can also be a resource to those struggling uh, in uh, uh, in oppressed and marginalized communities. Another question to to both of you. Uh, James Cone in his Black Theology of Liberation says that white theology must cease being white white theology and become black theology by denying whiteness as an acceptable form of human existence and affirming blackness as God's intention for humanity. So I'm interested in knowing, what do you think about this statement? Uh, and if we take Cohn's statement seriously, how do we go about doing that in the church and in the academy? Well, I think it's a, well, I guess first we want to understand that correctly, right? When James Cohn says white theology or not being white, he's not talking about people with a certain color skin or ancestors from a, you know, he's not saying white people shouldn't exist or, right, you have to like, I don't know go tanning a lot or something, I don't know what it would be. I mean, he means, he's basically saying, you know, there's a connection between, like, uh, the way whiteness as an identity, but also a position of power is basically connected to other people's suffering, right? So he's not, yeah, so 
I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I think as a Christian, you know, we can saints or saints to be, hopefully like Dorothy Day, following in their example of trying to, you know, shed attachments to and affiliations with the powerful and, and, and kind of be in alliance with less powerful people. Um, yes, I think absolutely. Not not just blackness, but all, all perspective. Like Dr. Lloyd talked about, there's many different forms of oppression, right? Um, and I would say, I guess, for the Catholic Church, I mean, it's, it's quite a, I would say, uh, the first thing I would say, the one only thing I'll focus on is, I think location, given that in our uh, society, especially anti-black racism, anti-blackness is very spatially, it, it works very spatially, particularly, you know, uh, through racial segregation, right? So you have racial segregation, so that allows um, law enforcement to act differently in black neighborhoods and in white neighborhoods, on and on. Um, I think something about where the church is located, and I'm talking like physically where parishes are located, like where people go to mass, right? Um, so the sense of, you know, the, the church is going to be with who it's physically with. So I think a sense of trying to physically move its space to, I guess, black spaces. Um, and, and, you know, uh, we think about, I like to think about what does it mean that we have the Eucharist, right? The Eucharist is supposedly, we're supposed to, you know, as Augustine said, become what we receive, right? We're supposed to not just receive the body of Christ, but become it. I mean, is that even possible, right? Given that our parishes, because they're spatially located, are in racially segregated areas, right? Can we even, I mean, we can have the Eucharist, it's listed, right? But do we become what we receive if we are, you know, in a suburban parish, right? That has a history of coming into existence primarily because white people were fleeing integrating neighborhoods in the city, right? So I guess those are kind of my, I guess, well, obviously easier said than done. That's kind of the main thing, I think, that would allow the, the Catholic Church in particular to do that. That's a really uh, elegant uh, answer, Kitty, and I, oh, I, would, uh, <laughs> I agree, with, uh, agree with everything you said. Uh, in, in terms of, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are challenges in separating uh, the ethical, the political, and the institutional in these sorts of cases, right? So, um, is Cohn uh, telling each of us how to live? Is he uh, giving a suggestion of how to organize politically? Uh, or is he uh, saying something about how uh, churches should be, should be structured or other uh, parish or church university organizations should be structured? Uh, there are probably lessons each of these three uh, domains can sort of learn from. Uh, from the provocation uh, of Cohn that, that you read, uh, and I, I, mean, I think uh, uh, Katie's uh, uh, reading on the institutional level uh, seems uh, seems great, and, and on the political level as well, in terms of you know uh, uh, organizing uh, with uh, communities that are, are the most marginalized, right? uh, uh, and uh, seeing uh, anti-black uh, racism in the U.S. context in 2016 as a site of particular. Uh, marginalization, I think that is a, a site of particular need for uh, uh, organizing, uh, and that uh, goes with uh, an ethical self-consciousness that um, whiteness uh, and blackness are not just uh, uh, skin colors, uh, but uh, sets of uh, habits embodied in institutions and cultures and uh, histories. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think uh, being uh, 
seems like there's a level of individual and collective analysis about what those habits are, right? Uh, and the, the geographical is, is certainly uh, one, and uh, an important one, and a good one to point to, uh, and a good one to change, right? because it's uh, relatively straightforward, but it, there are probably other sets of, uh, of habits uh, that uh, one might become conscious of if one finds oneself uh, you know, of doing an activity among people who are all of the same race. Maybe there's something about it. Like, this is a habit that goes along with uh, the sort of, uh, racial, uh, racial group. That, uh, um, with some uh, a, a, an ongoing process of uh, collective and individual analysis at, at a sort of ethical level uh, uh, complements the political work and the institutional work. Thank you so much for your talk. Can you speak all the ethical um, I'm curious about the process of church integration. Um, Martin Luther King's basis of the church is the most segregated time. The, the Americans most segregated time is Sunday mornings. And, um, I see that particularly when um, people of color, um, including myself, choose to attend mosques which are in Spanish, looking Asian people who are Latin American, or um, black Catholic churches, um, which there are a few, not many. Um, but to me, that's the uh, church is a place of refuge, and the church is an island, is uh, the white church on Sundays. How can that church be reconfigured? Because I've spoken with people and going back to the practical level, we see these offshoots as threatening the holistic integrity of the church. And what I perceive is that the church is actually fragmented by the lack of attention to these peripheral groups. Um, but I don't know how this transformation can occur given the geographic isolation, but also the mentality which segregates by seeing whiteness as wholeness and um, color race as others. That's a, a really good question. Um, I, I, yeah, well, I think the first thing I would say is I, I think, um, so we have to distinguish like cultural difference from unjust separation, right? So for example, no, no one's gonna be mad if, um, uh, you know, Polish Americans go to a Polish national church rather than the Italian national church, right? That, that, is, that seems to be, you know, that's a form of cultural difference that doesn't have any weird power dynamics behind it, right, or, or right? Um, so first thing I would say, you know, set, obviously race and culture intermingle, obviously, but separate out racially unjust segregations from just cultural difference. So I think the two get confused, and I think it does exactly what you said, right? It, it makes it look like uh, people wanting to have a, 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 a form of worship that is culturally specific, it makes them look like they're doing the same thing as white people fleeing an integrated neighborhood, right, when that's not true. And I think, I think about this a lot with, like, I guess, Anglo, white Anglo, and Latino, Latina, because uh, it, it seems in, in contrast to the history of white, black Catholics, where it seems like there is more sharing of parishes between those two groups. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of times, you know, you'll have, like, the Spanish mass, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think a lot about this. I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure, because on the one hand, I think, sometimes I think, well, that's, that's as it should be, right? You know, culturally specific. Mm -hmm. But then I think, why, why not have, oh, and sometimes I think, well, maybe it'd be better if, um, you know, every mass were half in English, half in Spanish, right? Or one week it was the Spanish, right? So I, I guess in myself with that particular thing, right, which I think is more complicated than, like, racial segregation, white, black, or, you know, racial segregation, white, Anglo, Latino. Um, I don't know, I go back and forth, right? Because I think there, it is important, especially for people who are living in a society that is not their 
their culture is not dominant. They don't get you know they don't get to speak Spanish during the week or whatever. Um, but at the same time, there's something being lost, not so much by the people in the Spanish mass, but the people in the English mass. Right. That's so that's what it, so that's where I, that's where I'm like, well, so maybe then why not switch off, right? You know, there's something to be said for. I mean, it's hard, right? Because in theory, in the abstract, oh, everybody should give a little bit, right? But then we're the church, the parish is in a society where that's not it's not 50-50. So I, I, in my head, I don't really know in that particular one. I, I can see, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I guess well, I wanted to know Dr. Oh yeah, or that's or that too, right? Yeah, you exist. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I wonder if the university is a is a helpful analogy with this as well, right? That uh, on the one hand, right, there are uh, uh, spaces for multicultural student affairs mm-hmm. and sort of thing in universities. Good that they exist, right? uh, but if the predominant culture of an institution, and uh, particularly of student life in an institution, uh, is still a racially specific culture, right, uh, that uh, seems like a problem. And um, one interest that can be addressed, for example, by recruiting a lot more students of color to be in the institutions, so that the culture changes, right? That, that doesn't change the culture instantly, but it's uh, one wrote or changes the culture, right? Ways of reconfiguring the institution. Uh, in terms of what priorities are during the academic experience, what uh, um, curriculum looks like, and there are different ways that the institution can change uh, in order to uh, 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 diminish the support for that's hegemonic, right? That's dominating uh, 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 culture, uh, uh, even if it uh, not necessarily in, uh, e- e- uh, a numerical mi- a majority, but uh, still, it's the culture that's dominating the student body. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, it doesn't seem like uh, a university has to aim to have, I mean, so, I mean, Villanova could aim to have a student body that more or less uh, maps the demographics of the Philadelphia area, right? uh, uh, which doesn't seem like uh, less than it should aim for, right? It, Seems like it should be overrepresenting <laughs> groups that have been historically underprivileged, right? so, uh, and that's the way that a culture changes, right? When uh, the uh, previously uh, dominant group is now in a minority position and has to, to figure out how to uh, navigate that, uh, that position, as well as bigger institutional changes in curriculum and so on. So I wonder if uh, that analogy would help uh, thinking about ecclesial responses. But we should hear from you. <laughs> I guess I have two responses. The first is the correlation from multicultural center. People think that's where the other people go. Is the dominant? Um, so I definitely see that analogy. But I think the difference between the university, I the university and the church, is that the church seems to be more about affect, and the university is more selective and intentional. Whereas in the church, people go to churches where they feel comfortable. Whereas in the university, it is about comfort, but it's also about you know I want to get this degree or this has to offer for me or the resources. And the church, it seems to be about where you feel at home, where you feel safe, where you feel comfortable. And my impression of the fragmentation is that people don't feel comfortable in majority white churches for various reasons. A lot of the reasons I've heard are actually liturgical. The music is not um, what I would listen to, what I would worship. There's minimal effort made to integrate the music. People in authority are tend to be white, um, and I'm just wondering what sort of again practices because that's what I'm really interested in has to happen where there is more because it also it places a great burden to me to 
from my perspective, on people of color to be the ones who integrate. Um, because they're the ones sort of forging the path, making it welcome, having to represent the race. If they behave in a way that's off, then it looks like that. That's just how people behave on Sunday mornings, sort of that race. Um, so there's a great burden placed on people to journey from their comfort zone on Sunday mornings. Um, so I guess it seems to be that the burden of responsibility is somewhat shifted. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if another way to shift that burden would be to talk about um, evangelization or something. Yeah, that's my worry, though, mm -hmm. because the missionary takes on that call as a um, vocational, almost individual call. But when people of color are called to integrate the university, the church, that becomes by virtue of belonging to the group. And they are representatives of that group. And that, to me, seems difficult. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but I just feel like there's a lot of work to be done on understanding what it means to have an environment and, and a climate, uh, an effective relationship with members of the community, what it means to form a community um, that's really profound and could in fact be a model for a Catholic university like Villanova. So. I wonder if you're just jumping in on this. Uh, what's the role of... You know, I've heard you speak a little bit not really about conversion and institutional critique and with that. So bringing this back again to the individual mm -hmm. level, not somebody who necessarily goes out, but somebody who encounters, and Dr. Grimes, I know you've written a little bit about kind of lament, especially in the wake of the Methodist AME um, mass terrorist attack in uh, Charleston. Um, so I wonder how these three, I normally think of two poles, but lament, encounter, um, and conversion can kind of be worked into. I mean, we're talking about liturgy, we're talking about individual work, but how that can kind of be crafted or into an institutional critique. Yes, I, I mean, so uh, conversion, of course, has ambivalence in terms of the, the uh, tendency in contemporary culture to think about it as overly individualized rather than um, a process that can be both collective and individual in those two orders in, in uh, a relation uh, to each other. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think my, my uh, instinct is to separate um, the bottom up from the top down. Right? Um, so, uh, from the top down, right, um, uh, institutions are not going to, uh, ecclesial institutions are not going to totally transform, right? Uh, they're uh, responsive to uh, where they see, uh, both, they're responsive to uh, uh, pressures, but also to where they see spiritual things happening uh, on uh, 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 the grassroots level. Uh, and spiritual and political pressure might look the same sometimes, right? Uh, or might look different. Um, uh, so, I, I mean, it, it seems like, uh, you know, uh, building from the grassroots uh, communities uh, that are uh, uh, anti-racist and uh, figuring out how to live collectively in, in ways uh, that advance racial justice uh, can model for institutions ways, ways to respond. It, uh, it seems sometimes overly ambitious and disheartening, potentially disheartening to try and uh, achieve institutional transformation, uh, whereas you know, uh, building collectively at a small level uh, and seeing that as resonating with other groups of building collectively grassroots levels and uh, building up energy can be more heartening. 
I was drawn to the, to the talk because of the language of prophetic mm. in the title. And it seems to me that um, institutions don't change, but if the prophetic voice that has already been expressed here um, finds a way not only to be expressed, but to be heard, like what Vincent was saying, by small groups, something starts to change, it seems to me. And, um, and I don't think it's ever simple, um, because the prophetic always says you're against the grain in some way. And I don't have a lot of insight into some of the questions that have actually been put on the table, but um, it seems to me that the, that the task that we have as theologians, but especially as human beings, is not to be afraid to be prophetic and to try to gather other voices. So not only is our effort to be prophetic purified, but it's, 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 it's rendered healthier, um, more stable. You have it, so Black Lives Matter, right? When that came out, all you heard was, well, White Lives Matter too, forgetting that the cultural context for the Black Lives Matter was, was really very, it, it wasn't a question of trying to take over so much as to be recognized in the way that everyone else is recognized, as I understand. And, and it seems to me that the, the decision of the university to have an armed police force on campus completely ignored even the interest of what was behind um, that decision, which I still believe is against the mission of a Catholic university, including Villanova. So I, I wonder to what degree some of the things that both of you have been saying are really about the, the, the mission of whether it be the department or or the university, or, or any of us, and, and how this um, heeding prophetic protests, and I'm not pushing them away just because they're protests, but somehow um, recognizing this integral to the, the mission we all have. Yeah, I like what you say about mission. I was thinking uh, a couple weeks ago, um, a group of students of our undergraduates set a, sent a really eloquent, powerful letter to Father Peter about, and this is the president of the university, about Black Lives Matter, and Father Peter wrote, a, I thought, a really incredible response back. But I think, you know, thinking of the students, and they, you know, they, they also organized a letter, really powerful, prayerful protest. Uh, protest isn't even the right word. It was almost like a public literature. It really yeah. was, yeah. Um, I think about them, I think what they're doing is they are repeatedly invoking the uh, the university's Catholic mission, but they're also uh, expanding our understanding of what that mission requires, right? Which I think that's, and I think that's the thing, right? Because we have a mission, but a mission isn't just something that you stay loyal to. It's kind of something that you kind of have to continually rediscover, uh, and it might mean something that you never. And so I think I see that's what our, our, those students are really doing. I think, and uh, yeah, I think that's very powerful. Thank you. I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about. Uh, mission uh, that it's less about a set of principles that one affirms than about a, a pointing to something beyond 
what is accepted now, right? Mm-hmm. To some sense that there is a, a truth or goodness or beauty that we want to pursue, but we don't know exactly what it is now, but we know it's not limited to mm-hmm. uh, what people are saying or seeing or feeling today. We may uh, be surprised sometimes. We may be surprised, and we should be looking for those, those mm-hmm. moments and groups that can surprise us. Uh, and we have some, you know, um, things that can help us in that, in that discernment, but uh, uh, it's more than just, you know, um, doing these five things or fulfilling these five value commitments mm-hmm. uh, right now. It's sort of empty pointing uh, beyond the present. Mm-hmm. To, to stay with this idea of, of prophetic, uh, I guess Dr. Grimes' question is kind of directed to you. How do we understand, since you've written your piece on Tupac, when the contemporary prophets of our day may not necessarily be Christian? Uh, so Tupac, or for example, you know Biggie Smalls, who said, you know, either you have a wicked jump shot or you're selling crack rock, when their reality is not necessarily a Christian reality. Uh, to what extent should outside voices uh, or sources uh, to that extent be used in uh, religious discourse. I miss mean, me shock some people, but I'm a, I'm a Thomist. I was a Thomist before I even knew who Thomas Aquinas was. So I guess for my interpretation of Aquinas, and there's like 10,000 you know, interpretations of, of him, but to me that sense of, I mean, to me, God is one, all truth is one, right? Certainly, I mean, revelation, the tradition has like a privileged place you know, that reason can't, re- you know, reason can't replace that, right? But at the same time, I think uh, truth, not just ethical, political truth, but ultimate truth, right? These aesthetic, truth, beauty, whatever, God. I mean, I think there's, truth is not, ev- it's not everywhere. But, I mean, uh, it could be the sciences, physics, whatever. I mean, yeah, to me, that's not, that doesn't make me feel weird. That's not a, an obstacle for me. But absolutely, I mean, I think, uh I mean, certainly I filter everything through my, like, kind of just my Catholic habituation and, and other aspects, but, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, God created the world. There's sin in a lot of places, but there's also truth and beauty and goodness in a lot of places. And uh, I think to ignore something just because it doesn't fall into a certain category is to, I think, actually to deny God and to try to shrink God into a box that makes you feel comfortable rather than, you know the other way around and be allowing yourself to be disrupted and uncomfortable. Thank you both so much. Thank you everyone for taking the time to be here. Um, it was a short conversation and we'll continue on, uh, but we're really grateful to have this time together uh, to delve into a little bit of your work, your stories, and uh,